My name is Adam, and um, I have a heart for preaching, and I'm currently pursuing that. Um, and the pastor has given me this chance, and I just want to thank him from up here and thank my dad, who's the associate pastor, um, for this opportunity just to come before you and speak, and speak on something um, as true and as powerful as Scripture. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, this is our second week of the series, The Holy Places. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And we are comparing that to how that fits into our lives today. Um, we're going to look at some more about how the Old Testament fits into our life today. Um, but that's mainly what we're looking at this month is the tabernacle. And we've kind of uh, built some of those areas around the worship center today. And I'm going to talk about those at the end. And I hope that you'll utilize those. But we're going to be talking today mainly about Scripture um, Last week, the pastor talked about the gateway and kind of introed us into the series. Um, and our theme verse for the series is Exodus 25, 9. It says this, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, you may say that's an odd theme verse for a series. But in talking about how the tabernacle um, how we are to mimic the tabernacle in our own lives, when it says, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you, that's translating to us is, make your life exactly, God's saying to us, make your life exactly like I've told you. And um, one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, he says it like this, he says, God is most glorified when we are most pleased in Him. And basically what he's saying is when God receives the most glory, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today is God's glory. God receives the most glory when we ourselves are pleased in Him. When we find our happiness, our joy, our desires, everything that we need, we find that in Him. God is most glorified. And that's basically what they're saying. God is saying, do what I tell you to, and I will be most glorified, but also you will be the most pleased. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. And the way we're going to be looking at that um, is the name of the sermon is Food for a Different Life, um, or I've, as I've come to call it, B90X. Um, I don't know how many of you have uh, heard about P90X, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. I've had a couple of run-ins with that. Um, but this week we're going to be talking about the bread of the presence. Um, as you go into the tabernacle, if they'll bring up the picture, next picture, that's the actual tabernacle. You can see God, the uh, image of God coming, or not the image, but the power of God coming down from the sky. If you'll go to the next picture, is there a picture next? No, yes, okay, there. Uh, the bread table is right there. I kind of put a red circle around it, but I still don't know if you can see it right there. Um, and it was located on the north side. Um, let me read to you kind of about the bread um, from Exodus where it talks about it, and it's found in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. Now, before I read that, if you'll look on your uh, handouts, uh, those of you who are regular tenders and members will notice that this morning you don't have blanks. Normally we have blanks. Um, but since I was talking about Scripture, and I hope some of you don't zone out because of this, since I was talking about Scripture, I thought it best that you, as a Christian or as a non-Christian, should take the notes that of things that God says to you this morning, take notes yourself. Um, I didn't want to tell you what to fill in or what to take because some of you may be at different spots when it comes to Scripture and your Christian life. So I kind of left some space under the Scriptures that we're going to be looking at um, for you to take your own notes. So I'm trusting that you guys are big boys and girls and can do that. We're good with that? All right. All right. So first we're going to be looking at Exodus uh, chapter 25, starting in verse 23. 
says this, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make, it, make for it four rings of gold. And you, will, and you shall make, oops, sorry, and fasten the rings to the four corners and its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings you shall lie as holders for the poles and carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes and of incense, for incense and its flagons and bowls with which you shall pour drink offerings. You shall make them out of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. That's a lot, and it's a lot of construction terms. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> it's not the most interesting part of the Bible, but it is from God. And it's really interesting to look at how God gave these specific instructions about how to make this table. Um, as I was reading through this, I was reading in a, one of the Bibles I have is the... Uh, is a Bible with commentary from Pastor John MacArthur. And during this section of Scripture, he described the bread of the presence in a very awesome way that I want to read to you guys, and it'll make a whole lot more sense of what this represented in the tabernacle, and it'll really set us off to where we're going today. And he said this, Each week, a batch of 12 loaves of bread were laid on the north side of the holy place. The utensils for this table were also made of refined gold. This bread of his presence was not set out, check this out, was not set out in order to feed Israel's God, unlike food placed in pagan shrines and temples. So like these pagans, they, these other people of God, they would set out their bread for their gods to eat, which we know they didn't, but they set them out for their gods to eat. Um, but that's not what this bread was for. It says, but this bread was to acknowledge that the 12 tribes were sustained constantly under the watchful eye and care of the Lord. The bread was eaten in the holy place each Sabbath by the priest on duty. Um, the bread of the presence is understood to typify the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread which came from heaven. There are three main... Uh, you can see the picture there with the 12 loaves. That's kind of something that somebody has recreated. Um, but from this bread of the presence, there's three parallels that we can draw from this. And this is really where we're going to go today. The first parallel is this. That the bread was there to sustain the priest... Just like scripture is here to sustain us as a holy priesthood. And if you read in 1 Peter 2.9, uh, Peter talks about how we are a chosen race, a holy priesthood. And just like the priest in the tabernacle back in the Old Testament had the bread sustain them, we as a holy priesthood have scripture to sustain us. The second parallel is this. Jesus is what the bread was about and is ultimately what scripture is about. Um, if you read in John 1, 1 through 3, it says, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's talking about Jesus there. That this scripture is about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And the awesome thing, we're going to look at this a little bit later as well, is that the Old Testament, many y'all would agree, the New Testament's about Jesus, right? You got the four Gospels, and then you got Acts, and you got all the letters from Paul, and Peter, and James, and Jude, and you have, and they talk about Jesus. What many people don't realize, and I think we do a horrible job of teaching this um, in our church today, is that the Old Testament is also about Jesus. And we're going to be looking at that as well, about how this whole book is about one person, our hero, Jesus Christ. And um, the awesome thing is that, is that that's ultimately what Scripture is about. The third parallel is this. The bread was constantly in the presence of God, just as we should be constantly in His presence when we feast on the Word. And um, I'm going to talk a lot more about that as we get going but my main goal of today is, is I'm not going to, 
And I'm going to share some secret Christian truth with you guys. We're going to awe or amaze you. So if you came to be awe and amazed, I'm sorry. Um, but I just want to remind you guys, and, and the section of Scripture we're going to be looking at in Peter, you're going to see how that's his main goal is just to remind you guys of the truth of Scripture and the amazing power and glory that it gives God when we are in Scripture. Um, okay, so P90X. Um, how many know what P90X is? Anybody? Stayed up like 3 o'clock in the morning and see. Okay, well let me describe to you what P90X is. P90X is this workout program um, developed by a guy named Tony Horton. And the reason it's called P90X is because it's an extreme workout for 90 days. And if you do it for 90 days, you're supposed to have these amazing results. Well, I got a hold of a copy of it. And um, just by show of hands, has anybody already made commitments for this new year to lose weight, build muscle, any... It's okay. We, any, any, to get healthier. Get healthier. Okay. <laughs> Dan's going to start tomorrow. That's good. That's what I kept telling myself. Well, here's my problem. So, evidently, P90X is too extreme for me, um, and I wasn't able to commit. Here's what happens. So, I get P90X, and I do the first day, which is supposed to be uh, chest and arms, which, as you can see, I don't have. Um, but I, I, I start this, and, and the weird thing is you, you do it for like an hour and you don't stop. There's no breaks, really. You get like a 15-second break, but you're doing push-ups. Then you go do some pull-ups. Then you do push-ups a different way. And then you do pull-ups. And you just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I made it till about like 20 minutes into the workout. Um, and then I couldn't do anymore. Um, then I was like, oh, man, I'm such a loser. What kind of loser can't even finish a workout? Um, that wasn't the worst part. The next day when I woke up, um, this, this is about as high as I could lift my arms. And like, I couldn't, like, I had to, like, physically make myself bend my own arm. Um, so needless to say, I was unable to commit to P90X. But uh, it reminded me in doing that about how often we uh, commit to getting healthier and we commit to all these different things. But as I was preparing this sermon, I began to ask myself, because this is, I began to prepare this sermon right after that ordeal. Um, I began to ask myself, how committed to the Word of God am I? How committed to its truths am I? Um, how in love with the words in this book am I? And my question for you today would be, how would you have felt this morning? This is kind of a test of, of your love of Scripture. How would you guys have felt this morning if I or anyone else had just came before you and just opened this book up and just read from it for an hour, an hour and a half, just read Scripture to you? Are you in that in love with this book? Are you that in love with this word that that would have been okay for you? Or are, are you here this morning um, so that you can be uh, awed and laugh and shocked and, and that you can hear some funny stories? Because I personally believe that your alone time with God each day should be greater than this. Because when you're alone with God, you don't have distractions. You don't have the babies crying. No, there's none in here crying right now. But you, you don't have, you know, you don't have all these distractions. You don't have someone up here speaking to you. It's you and God. And a long time with you and God, that should be way greater than this for you personally. And that just, it's just a test of how much do you love Scripture. Um, and that's what I really want to get at today. So our main portion of scripture today is going to come from 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, how many of you actually brought your Bibles today? If you got your Bible, go ahead and hold up. We're not going to... 
say. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Um, okay. Um, if, you don't, if you don't have a Bible with you, and it's because you don't own a Bible, please see one of me or the pastors, and we will get you a Bible. Um, but I think a lot of times we, we say, oh, they're going to put it up on the screen. Um, I don't need to bring my Bible. So hopefully you're not like that, and you actually bring your Bible. Um, because I want you to turn there with me today and actually mark in your Bible uh, the things that we hit on. So if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I'll give you a second to do that. Wet my whistle. Um, all right. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 15 first. It says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. As I was preparing this and as I was reading this, um, some key phrases jumped out to me. The first one would be, uh, I intend to always remind you. Peter's whole purpose, and my whole purpose this morning, is to simply remind you. That's all I want to do. I don't want to unveil some secret truth to you. I just want to remind you of the power of Scripture. That next phrase, and this is where it gets kind of, kind of crazy um, as Peter writes this, is he says, the putting off of my body will be soon. Is, is that not a weird way to say that? That the putting off of my body will be soon. He's saying, basically saying I'm going to die soon. But I, I, I love the way he says that, though. That this is, not, this is not home for me, is what he's saying. That this, this flesh, this bone that you see, soon it's going to be gone. And I'm not going to be here anymore. But praise the Lord, I'm going to be with him in heaven. And that's what Peter's saying. It's the putting off of this body. It's almost like he's like... He's like inside of a cocoon, and he's a butterfly about to come out. He's about to shed off this, this ugly cocoon, and he's going to fly away like a beautiful butterfly. Um, but that's, that's basically kind of what he's saying there. And what's really weird is that he says, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Is, is that odd to you that it was made clear to him? Um, so as I was reading this, I was like, that's, that's really odd. So I did some searching. And in fact, Jesus did make clear to John, Peter, and I think this is the cool thing. If you'll turn to John, um, well, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. John 21, verses 18 and 19. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And uh, this is after Jesus uh, kind of redeems Peter, after Peter denied him, you know, before his death. Jesus is saying, if you follow, will you follow me? And Peter's saying yes, and Jesus says, feed my sheep. And they go through this whole dialogue. And then Jesus gets to this portion of in verse 18, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. <laughs> and this is the crazy part. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Jesus just told you how you're going to die, and then he says, Follow me. And the crazy thing is that Peter does it. That's, that, that blows my mind. I don't know that I, I would be, could do that. That if, if God said, Adam, this is how you're going to die. You're going to die because you followed me. Now follow me. 
that's crazy to me. And Peter still follows him. But history tells us that, that this prophecy and that this statement was fulfilled, actually, that Peter was crucified. And that's, where, that's why it says, well, and you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Um, Peter was crucified, and history tells us that he did not see himself fit to be crucified the same way his Savior was. So he had his executioners crucify him upside down. Which, I can't even imagine how bad crucifixion is. But just to add, upside down. And it's crazy to see that, that when we go back to Second Peter, Peter's at the end of his life. And he says, I know that the putting off of my body is soon, as Jesus made clear to me. I know that death is coming soon. And see, this is the next statement he makes. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time recall these things. I don't know what you want to do at the end of your life. I don't know if you want to die sitting on a front porch with your wife or husband in a rocking chair. Or if you want to be walking down the beach collecting seashells. But personally me, I want to go out like Peter did. I want to go out saying that I made every effort to the people that I knew in my life. That they knew how true and how biblical and how awesome the Bible is. I want to make every effort. It, it comes back to the, uh, the, the Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. And it basically what that statement means is that scripture is our highest authority. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying that I'm going to make every effort to make sure that this is my highest authority. And I don't answer to anybody else but this. And he sets all that up and goes into verse 16. It says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That first phrase, cleverly devised myths. I want to hit on this for a second and uh, recommend a book kind of about this. Um, it's so funny in our world, all of the cleverly devised myths that we find. And what Peter is saying, and he's going to go into this more deeply in a second, he's saying that we didn't follow those cleverly devised myths. Um, some examples today, and I kind of did some research and got some of these for us, of some cleverly devised myths. Um, I did this by looking at how other religions um, view Jesus. And I thought I'd share this because a lot of times you'll hear, especially young people my age, they'll say, oh, all religions are the same. All paths lead to God. They all basically believe the same thing. Um, so I did some research. Um, liberal Christians and some of the emergent church, you may hear that term thrown around, the emergent church, they, they have some very um, loose views of Christianity. They, they say that Jesus was merely a good man but they are not clear about his being of a God man. They'll, they'll dance around. They'll say, oh, he was a good guy, but we don't know if he was really God. I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna go there. They, that's how they are. It's really quite funny. Um, they, don't, they don't put their thumb down on it. Oh, this is God in the flesh. Check this out. According to Mormon theology, Jesus is the literal son of God and his goddess wife. He was born through physical sexual relations with Mary and he is known as the polygamist half-brother of Lucifer. So basically they believe Jesus is just one of many sons of God and that he is a brother to Lucifer. And I just think, yeah, all religions are basically the same. 
not so much. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was merely Michael, the archangel, a uh, created being that became man. So he was basically just this fallen angel, basically. All religions are the same? We, no? Okay. Um, has anybody seen Avatar, the movie? Yeah? No? Somebody, some people? Okay. I don't know if you've seen it on TV. It's about these blue people. It's really weird, though, if you see the movie, and to go back and look at Hindu, the religion Hindu, and how weird they are. Check this out. Hindus believe that Jesus, Jesus was an avatar, not the blue kind. Um, in the teachings of Hindu origin, one finds the term avatar um, at different stages. And basically it means people that are not on earth for their own progress, but voluntarily to contribute to the progress of a nation or mankind. Um, kind of a drop of divine completeness. Um, and basically what it's saying is that Jesus came here voluntarily so that he could further our race. He was just here to help us along kind of, and teach us some good things so that we could kind of move along as a race of humans. That's what Hindus believe, and that's kind of what they mean by avatar. Just go watch the movie. It's really weird. Um, Unitarian Universalism teaches that Jesus was not God, but rather essentially an incarnation of, the best I can describe it is Mr. Rogers, basically, um, a great man to be respected solely for his teaching, love, and justice, and healing. Basically, he's just a good man to listen to. That's basically what they're saying. Um, New Age is another kind of all paths lead to God kind of religion, and uh, one of their gurus, Deepak Chopra, told Larry King this, I see Christ as a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. So basically, I see Jesus as this mindset that we can all get to. According to Scientology, the crazy group of guys they are, Jesus is an implant forced upon a Thetian about a million years ago. Now, I don't know what a Thetian is, and I can't really tell you anything else about that because evidently I haven't done enough drugs in my life to understand Scientology. But... That's uh, what they say. And then my favorite is the, uh, and I, I swear this is true, the Canadian nudist arsonist cult. <laughs> yes. The Canadian nudist arsonist cult, they think that the word Jesus in the Bible is a code word for hallucinogenic mushrooms. And that they, they are to be eaten every time that word is seen before getting naked and lighting things on fire. I mean, if, if you're going to hell, what better way to go than naked and lighting things? I'm just kidding. Um, but it, that, that's crazy, right? That, that, all, that people believe that all religions are the same and that's basically the same thing. Do you hear the cleverly devised myths? This is what Peter is talking about. He's saying, we did not follow the cleverly devised myths. And I hope that you would say the same thing about yourself this morning, that you don't follow, oops, you don't follow the cleverly devised myths of our time that basically all religions are the same and that we, they, we all get to the same place eventually. Um, if you want to know more about this, I don't want to come up here and just preach at you guys and not give you any uh, aid yourself, I guess. Um, I would recommend this book that I have. I mean, you can buy it for yourselves as well. Um, it's called When Skeptics Ask, a Handbook on Christian Evidences by Norman L. Geisler. Um, if you want to write that down right quick. Basically, it's a book about apologetics. Apologetics is the study of defending your faith. Um, and basically, it answers a lot of different questions in here about different religions, different gods, uh, what the Bible says about evolution, creationism, stuff like that, uh, what the Bible says about miracles, are miracles real? Kind of, it just kind of 
will build a great foundation for your faith. Um, you can probably find it. It says on here that it's $18, but you can probably find it on Amazon for like $10 used. Um, it's a really cool book, and it really helps you uh, build kind of a foundation uh, for kind of our faith and why we believe what we believe and what the Bible says about those things. But Peter says here, he says, we did not follow. I'm going to kick that over if I leave it sitting there. <laughs> He says, we do not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses to glory. Let me get back to this for a second. Let me ask you a question straight up, straightforward. Have you been, or ever, ever in your life, or maybe right now, an eyewitness to the glory of God? Have you been an eyewitness? Peter says, we were eyewitnesses to the glory of God. We saw it. And he goes on, going on into the... Uh, in the verses in verse 17 and 18, he, goes, he continues to build upon this eyewitnesses of glory. He says, uh, right here, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this vo very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, none of us have been on the mountain with God, but... Um, this is what Peter is saying. He's saying we were an eyewitness to glory. Let me kind of read to you what he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to go through these real quick, but it's, it's the transfiguration that Peter's talking about. It says, And after six days Jesus took him, Peter, and James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Peter and his friends, they go up the mountain Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus lights up like a light bulb, and there's Moses and Elijah, and they're just chatting it up, just having a good old time talking. And uh, where did I leave off? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let me stop here. Peter's always running his mouth, and he never knows when to shut up. And this is one of those times. So Peter's like, so you have like Jesus and Moses and Elijah hanging out over here. And Peter's like, oh, hey guys, yo, if, uh, if I could uh, build you guys a tent, just let me know. Because I'm not doing anything else. You guys look like you're having fun. And you know, if I could just, and, and check out what happens. This is great. It says, uh, he was still speaking. He's still running his mouth, still running his mouth, still speaking. When, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And check out what they do. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but only but Jesus. So Peter's like, yo, guys, if, if I could build you guys a tent. And all of a sudden, this great cloud, it's the same cloud that led Moses in the desert. It, it represents the glory of God. It just shows up and starts talking. And Peter's like, uh, you know, like he just, it's, it's funny to picture to me how these disciples, when they saw this cloud, they just like fell on their faces. And uh, we're going to talk about that trembling here in a little bit. But <laughs> Peter is saying back over, if we go back to 2 Peter, we're going to keep coming back to 2 Peter. If we go back to 2 Peter, this is what he's talking about. He says, we were eyewitnesses to glory. Now, I, you guys have got to understand the importance of this statement. You've got to understand what Peter's saying here. He's saying, I was with Jesus on this mountain. We were just hanging out. And all of a sudden, 
Jesus lights up like the 4th of July. Well, they didn't have the 4th of July, but he lit up like Passover. I don't know. He lights up. And then these two father, forefathers that I've heard about my whole life, Moses and Elijah, show up with him. And we're there. And I don't know, Peter's like, I don't know. When I get nervous, I just start talking. And all of a sudden, this huge cloud comes down from heaven. And this voice comes out of this cloud. I was there. This is what Peter's saying as he writes this. He's saying, I was there. I was an eyewitness to that glory. And it's important that you understand that statement, the truth and the realness of that statement, the greatness of that statement, because the next thing Peter says is revolutionary. In verse 19, this is what Peter says. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do, do you understand what Peter's just saying? Let me marry those two verses together, 18 and 19. Peter's saying, I was an eyewitness to the glory. I was up there on a mountain with Jesus. I saw this bright light. Jesus lit up. A voice came from heaven. I saw all that. But we, as followers of Christ, have something more sure than that. We have something greater than me actually being there. The prophetic word of God. I, 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 can't, I, I can't convey that point to you guys enough. It's just something that, you, as a Christian, you have to realize that this book, as he says, you will do well to pay attention to. As to a lamp shining... In a dark place. The best way, and this goes back to that quote from John Piper about being glorified, God being glorified when we're most pleased. The best way that we can glorify God, the best way that we can follow Jesus, is when we pay attention to this word. And when he goes on to say, like a lamp shining, um, we're talking about the, the light of Christ. And the pastor's going to preach on that next week. But let me just hit on this. that, And I feel like if we could see into the spiritual world, if we could see on the other side, I feel like every time when we open this word, something would come out of it. Like, I, I, I don't know if you can picture that with me, but it's almost if I, as if I had a, a drop light here or a spotlight coming out of my Bible. And every time I open this, God's word comes out of it, and there's this light that comes out of this word, and it's unlike anything else that you can read. It's unlike anything else that you can open. It's unlike anything else you can look at. And that's why Peter says you would do well to pay attention to this. That's why it's something more sure. It's like it's almost like if, if I had this Bible open, I can walk into any darkness. I can walk into any situation, and as long as this Bible's in front of me, it's going to light my way. And that's why Peter hits on this so much. That's why he, he told this story. So he could say that this is even more sure than that. This is even greater than that. Because it's full of the Old Testament about how God redeemed our people. It's full of the prophecies of Jesus. It's full of Jesus. 
It's full of all of these things that are more sure than us actually being there because we know what happened. We have the, the culmination, all of it put together right here. And then he gives us reason why we can hold to this book above everything else in verses 21, or 20 and 21. He says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So, booyah in the face of people that say, Oh, the Bible was just a bunch of guys wrote this book, you know, whatever. Prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That means no guy got up one morning and said, Okay, I'm just going to write some Scripture today. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that, that, that he closes this passage by saying Scripture is not just some ideas or dreams that men had, that it's not just some story about this guy that was born of a virgin and that all this stuff happened to him and he, he did all these things. He says that God willed people to write these things, that as these things happened, people wrote them down. All four Gospels, they're not, they're not written hundreds of years later. They were eyewitnesses. These people were eyewitnesses to glory, just like Peter was. That's why some in, in our Bible, you may hear some people debate that we don't include all the Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of this or that and the other. That's because, as history tells us, those Gospels were written way after Jesus came. But the Gospels that we have in our Bible, those were written by the people that were there. John was written by John that was on the mountain with Jesus in the verse we just read. Luke, he was an educated man, and he went around and, and interviewed all of these people to culminate the book of Luke. These men wrote words that were breathed by God. The best way I can describe it is kind of if I had a megaphone up here. And the megaphone represented a person and I represent God, which I'm not in any way. But if I represented God and the people represented, were represented by a megaphone and I spoke through the megaphone, that's the best way I can describe it, is that God spoke through them and spoke these words. And that's why he says this is truth. My question is, is do you see the Bible that way? Do you see the Bible as the truth of God? Do you see it as his holy word? Because when we begin to see it that way, things take a dramatic shift in our lives. Um, our view of God is changed. Our view of life is changed. Our view of where we want to go in our life is changed. Because we have these words, the very words from God speaking to us. As I was uh, preparing this uh, this week, I was reminded of a, a passage of scripture that I heard a pastor use um, in one of his sermons about a month ago. Um, I love. Does anybody else love just watching like sermons on iTunes? Am I the only one? Okay, it's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I just love listening to people talk about Jesus. I just love it. I love hearing people talk about God. I love people reading the Bible. And um, and the crazy thing, I didn't even say this to you guys at the beginning, but I feel like probably one of the most unworthy people to be preaching this sermon because 
I feel like I'm probably in the same boat that a lot of you guys are, is that I'm not committed to God's Word as much as I should be, and I don't revere it as much as I should be. So as I was reading this, as I was preparing this sermon, I just got convicted time and time again about, Adam, how, how untrue to my Word are you? So as I've been preparing this, I've just been praying this prayer that, God, would, would you just make me hungry for your Word? God, would you just make me desire your Word? Um... And he has. It's amazing to see that when you ask God to, for something that will glorify him, how he fulfills that. That God, can, can I glorify you more by staying in your word more? Yes, Adam, you can. If you would live in my word, I will be glorified and you will be pleased in me. Um, back, sorry, I kind of ran off there, sorry. Um, as I was listening to this sermon about a month ago, uh, this pastor that I love, he used this scripture from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 66, 2. And it says this, All these things my hand, this is God speaking, All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Check this out. But this is the one to whom I will look. God says, this is the person that I'm going to look to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And say it with me. Everybody, let's say it together trembles at my word. The person that God looks to to, fu- to fulfill his will, the person that God adores, is the person that trembles at his words. Going back to way back to Exodus 25.9 where God tells us or tells the people of the Old Testament do this do this, do this, build it this way, build it this way, build it this way. When God says and trembles at my word, that's him saying, I want you to tremble at my word. Because when you tremble at my word, I'm going to be glorified. There's two ways you can look at the Bible. And um, I hope you're the latter. The first way you can look at the Bible is this way. You stand over the Bible. You lord over the Bible. You are the authority over the Bible. You claim the Bible. This is my Bible, capital M-Y. This is my Bible. So when it says something that you disagree with, you'll just ignore that part of the Bible. Or when it calls you to repentance, you'll say, oh, that was cultural. When it says, uh, don't cheat on your wife, oh, that's just the way they did it back then. When it says, don't have sex until marriage, oh, that's just the way they did it back then. When it calls you to repentance, you're like, meh. That was way back then. I'm not going to listen to it. And you claim authority over the Bible, and you're, ah, the Bible. That's the first way. The second way is the Isaiah 66, 2 way. And that is to tremble, where the Bible is over you, and you're saying, God, this is your word, and it is above me, and it has all authority over me. And God, if it says something that I disagree with, I want to change my mind. And God, if it calls me to repentance, I'm going to turn and sprint the other way towards you. Because God, this is your very word to me. That, that I could, that this is the crazy thing, that I could open up to anywhere in here and just start, okay, here, let's try it out. Nehemiah 6, 10. Now when I went into the house of Shammai, the son of Delai, son of Meth. 
That's God's word. Even though I can't even pronounce those names, that's God's word to you. It doesn't, any part of this scripture, that's what, that's what blows my mind is that, is that we don't realize that the greatness of God's word, that every letter in the Bible is for us to feast on. Like this loaf of bread, that every word is, I don't even know why I got this, because I'm not going to eat any of it, but um, I'm going to help put it back there at the communion table. But that, that scripture is like this. It's this feast, greater than any Thanksgiving meal, Christmas meal that you can think of. That when we're in the word of God, we're feasting on something that's sweeter than the sweetest wine. Um, and, and I hope you guys realize that this morning. Um, I said that I was going to kind of tie in the uh, Old Testament uh, to Jesus, and I'm going to do that now. Um, I'm just up here recommending books. They ought to pay me for this. Um, another book that I, I've got and that I, I probably read through in about two or three hours um, is a book called, a book you'll actually read on the Old Testament. Um, a pastor I love by the name of Mark Driscoll, as a pastor of a church in Seattle, Washington. And he's come out with a series of these books called A Book You'll Actually Read on. And there's one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament, one on God, one on leadership. And they're like, you can get them for 5 or $10. Um, and you can probably read through it in an hour, two hours. Um, but as I was reading this, I came to this part, and it's pretty lengthy. So I'm going to read to you guys for a while. So I don't, sorry I don't have a rocking chair like in kindergarten where I would read to you guys. But, um. I'm going to read to you guys where he's, he talks about the Old Testament and the New Testament, how Jesus, the Old Testament is about Jesus as well. It says this, The Old Testament teaches about Jesus through appearance, the appearances that he makes before his birth. See, I don't, as I was reading this, I was like, I've never even thought about that. I kind of got mad at my dad because he never told me this. Um, but I'm not going to blame him. You know, some things you got to find out on your own. Um, <laughs> I'll start over. The Old Testament teaches about Jesus through appearances that he makes before his birth, or what are called Christophanies. Examples include walking with Abraham, wrestling with Jacob, appearing to Moses, joining Daniel in the fiery furnace, and calling Isaiah into ministry. Other examples may include the occasional appearance of the angel messenger of the Lord, who is sometimes identified as God. This angel provided the sacrifice in Isaac's place, and spoke and journeyed with Moses. That's cool in itself, right? Can I get an amen? That Jesus was there the, the whole time. And that's what it's talking about in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Like, through all this stuff, through Moses, through Exodus, through, through all the Old Testament, Jesus was right there with them. It's, it's, it just blows my mind. And, and it doesn't stop there. I got a lot more to read you guys. <laughs> it says, uh, furthermore, types are Old Testament representative figures, institutions, or events that foreshadow Jesus. So it's talking about people of the Old Testament, things that went down the Old Testament that were symbols of Jesus, that were preparing us as, as we look to them and say, oh yeah, it's talking about Jesus right there. All right, so here we go. Examples include Adam, who foreshadows Jesus as the second Adam. The priesthood, which prefigures Jesus as our high priest. David and other kings who prefigured Jesus as the king of kings. Moses and the prophets, who prefigured Jesus as our ultimate prophet. Animal sacrifices, which prefigured Jesus as the sinless lamb of God slain for our sins. 
here's where we're kind of getting to where we're talking about the temple and the tabernacle. The temple, which prefigures God's presence dwelling among us in Jesus. I'm losing my place. Uh, shepherds who care for their sheep, which reminds us we are as foolish and vulnerable as sheep, but that Jesus, our shepherd, keeps constant watch over us. Judges who foreshadow Jesus as the final judge of all people and many others. And then he starts getting into people, and this is what I really love, because we hear stories about all these different people in the Old Testament. We're like, what does that have to do with us? We also see people in the Old Testament who perform various kinds of service analogous to the service that Jesus performs perfectly. Unlike the first Adam, checks out, Jesus Christ is the last Adam who passed his test in a garden. Did you ever think about that? That before Jesus crucified, he was in a garden, just like Adam was in a garden. And in so doing so, inputted his righteousness to us to overcome sin, imputed to us through the sin of the first Adam. Jesus is a true and better Abel, Cain and Abel, true and better Abel, who, although he was innocent, was slain, and whose blood cries out for our acquittal. When Abraham left, check this, I love this. When Abraham left his father and home, he was doing the same thing that Jesus would do when he left heaven. It's amazing. When Isaac carried, have you ever even thought about this? When Isaac carried his own wood and laid down his life to be sacrificed at the hand of his father, Abraham, he was showing us that Jesus, what Jesus would later do. Jesus is a greater Jacob who wrestled with God in Gethsemane and though wounded and limping, walked away from his grave blessed. Jesus is a greater Joseph who serves at the right hand of God the King, extends forgiveness and provision to those of us who have betrayed him and uses his power to save us in loving reconciliation. Jesus is greater than Moses in that he stands as a mediator between God and us, bringing us the new covenant, bringing us the new covenant like Job, Innocent Jesus suffered and was tormented by the devil so that God might be glorified. Do you catch that? Job was tormented by the devil, but the reason that took place is so that God would be glorified. Jesus was tormented, beaten, crucified. Yes, for our sins, but ultimately so that God would be glorified. And I'm going to hit on that a little bit more, that, that truth that it's all for God's glory, Jesus, I'll hold it. Okay. I'll stop. Can't breathe. Um, Jesus is a king greater than David, who was slain, who has slain our giants of Satan's sin and death. Although in the eyes of the world he was certain to face a crushing defeat at their hands, Jesus is a greater. I love this one. Jesus is greater than Jonah, in that he spent three days in the grave and not just a fish to save multitude even greater than Nineveh. Furthermore, when Boaz redeemed Ruth and brought her and her despised people into community with God's people, he was showing that Jesus, what Jesus would do to redeem his bride, the church, from all the nations of earth. When Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, he was doing something similar to Jesus, who was building for us a new Jerusalem as our eternal home. When Hosea married an unfaithful, whoring wife, whom he continued to pursue in love, he was showing us the heart of Jesus, who does the same for his unfaithful bride, the church. Finally, when God's people sought to keep their homes free of filth through various Old Testament rituals. They were showing that their lives were filled with filth of sin, that they desperately needed Jesus to come and make them clean. Can I get an amen this morning? Is that not amazing? That the whole Bible, the whole thing, it was all about one guy, Jesus. And that Jesus came for one reason, to glorify God. 
Because when he died on that cross and gave us salvation, it wasn't so that we could be like, oh, Jesus, I got salvation now. It's so that we have salvation now we can glorify God. And this is why Peter says, I want to remind you of the greatness. He's saying, I'm here to remind you. Because this is what he's saying. Peter's saying, I don't care if you, if you strip me. I don't care if you beat me. I don't care if you rip me apart. I don't care if you crucify me. Crucify me upside down. I don't care what you do. I'm holding to this and this alone. Because this is the word of God, words from God to me. And I'm holding on to it and nothing else. It's the most high authority. I tremble only at it. And that, that should be our heart cry this morning. That these are God's words for you. That you may bring him the glory he deserves. It's, it's so amazing to be able to be a part of a community like Day 3. I love it. I love being able to come to church and know everybody. Um, I've already noticed it, but if we continue to grow, I'm not going to know everybody. But I love being able to come to church and see people and say, Hey, good to see you, good to see you, glad. How was your week? But there's something about being alone with this word. There's something about this book. It, see, it, it blows my mind, and I'm, I'm, this, uh, I'm this way too. It blows my mind that, how many of you read Twilight? <laughs> Anybody? Twilight? Yeah? No? All, all four books? Anybody read all four books? Oh, there's some people? Okay. It, it blows my mind that there are these girls out there, and women, I guess, and men, too, I don't know, everybody, that can read all four of those books, and they're all like 600-plus pages, right? I mean, they're, if you stacked them all together, they'd be like, It blows my mind that some people, Christians, have read all four of those books, but they've never read through this book. That, that blows my mind. But I'm the same way. Like, I watched, anybody watch the show House? Anybody love House? I love House. I watched all five seasons in like a month and a half. See, I'm the same way. Don't, I'm, not, I'm not hating on the Twilight people because I, I watched all five seasons of the house in like a month and a half. Um, and I was committed to that. <laughs> like, I watched episodes every day. But how committed to this am I? We're committed to these TV shows, to these other books, to these cool things that come up and down, up and down, you know. But how committed to God's word are we? Do, do, do we have that Isaiah 66-2 mentality that these are God's words to us? They're spoken to us that if we open this book up, something comes out that it can't be contained. Do we view it like that? Because I feel like a lot of times we don't. But I feel like if we begin to get this, this mentality that the Bible is about one thing, and that's God's glory. And that if we pray for a hunger for God's glory and we constantly are looking into his word, that's going to change everything for us. That's gonna, whether you realize it or not, that's going to change our whole church. That if you begin to view God's word as his glory, and it's all about his glory, and that my life should be like that, my life should be a mirror of the Bible, it should be all about God's glory, we're going to have to buy some new chairs, and we're going to have people sitting like on the steps. Because when people begin to realize that, it, it becomes contagious. Oh, i got to tell somebody about God's glory. It's all about God's glory. i got to tell somebody about that. i got to read this verse today, and God just spoke to me, and i got to tell somebody about it. 
It's, you've got to get that mentality. And I, and I wonder a lot of times, do we have that mentality? Do we have that mentality? Um, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to close a little bit different today. Um, let me pray first, and then I'll share how we're going to close. Let's pray.